Welcome to Promiscuous Listening, where we take a cue from John Milton's 1644 tract, Areopagitica, and its promotion of reading promiscuously to learn from the diversity of voices in 21st century Milton studies. My name is Marissa Greenberg, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my conversations with scholars about the works of John Milton, and especially his epic poem, Paradise Lost. All right, here we go. The second half of John Milton's Paradise Lost opens with the words, descend from heaven. These words are directed to Urania, the ancient Roman muse of astronomy, who, on account of her association with the heavens, became the Renaissance European muse of Christianity. As part of the epic's third invocation, the poet speaker's call for his muse to descend from heaven to earth parallels the movement of Paradise Lost itself. In Book 7, the poet's speaker, along with their audience, both readers and Adam and Eve, return to their native element. From the heavenly setting of Books 5 and 6, in which angels war against angel, the narrative moves to our known universe and specifically to the creation of Earth and everything on it. In writing this part of the epic, Milton draws heavily on the hexameron, meaning the six days of creation, as told in the opening chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible. To talk with us about Book 7 of Paradise Lost and its biblical engagements, we welcome Dr. Angelica Duran. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Duran. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes. First, let me thank you, Marissa, for inviting me to be part of your ProfCast series. I'm Angelica Duran. I'm a professor of English Comparative Literature and Religious Studies at Purdue University, where I've been since earning my PhD in English Literature from Stanford University in 2000. While the bulk of my research and publications have been on Milton, I consider myself primarily a Renaissance or early modern English specialist with a comparative literature bent. The comparative involving English, Spanish, and a touch of Latin, as well as biblical studies and translation studies, which are so involved in comparative literature and Renaissance studies. Like Sir Philip Sidney, you could say I, quote, freely range within the zodiac of my own wit. Thank you for that introduction. And I love that quote from, from Sydney. Um, I'm, I may have to adopt it, but I, I will be sure to cite you as, as my source. Um, I And I think it's worthwhile pointing out that, you know, even though I know Sydney's work pretty well, that that quote is new to me. And so it, it seems appropriate to start with the Bible and the way in which the Bible may be familiar to some of our listeners, may be less familiar to others. Um, and to be really forthright about the ways in which the version of the Bible that listeners will know is going to be usually pretty specific to their religious communities, their houses of worship. Um, but Milton, in addition to probably knowing Sir Philip Sidney's canon like the back of his hand, as it were, uh, he would have known uh, a variety of versions of the Bible, wouldn't he? That's right. The British Library has Milton's family Bible, which is a King James Version, mm. although the Bible of his third and last wife, Elizabeth Minshall, which is held at the Ransom Center at the University of Texas, Austin, 
is a Geneva Bible. They're very similar in language, um, but their accoutrements are very different. Um, but the King James Bible really took off. Milton, though, would have known the Bible in its original languages and might have accessed translations into other vernaculars as he sought throughout his life to determine his evolving belief system. We're certain he knew English, Latin, Greek, French, and Italian. Milton's nephew, Edward Phillips, who was one of his students at his home in London, attributes his uncle as having known what he calls Chaldee and Syriac, or what we would call Aramaic, which is a language used in the Bible. Milton may also have known Spanish or Portuguese, and if that's not enough, in 1652, um, when he was uh, very, you know, uh, middle-aged, to say the least, uh, the year in which he became blind, he began to take lessons in Dutch. Um, so um, his independent interpretation of the Bible must have been influenced by and indeed inspired him to strengthen his skills in the Bible's original languages. I don't know Hebrew, but I often reference Everett Fox's English translation of his book called The First Five Books of the Moses, uh, published in 1995 which my colleagues in religious studies and reviewers say does a good job of giving a more accurate sense of the excitement and energy of the original Hebrew of those books. Um, to take just the example of the opening lines of the first two sentences or verses of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, here's how it's rendered in the King James Version of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Contrast that lovely grandeur with this Everett Fox version. At the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, when the earth was wild and waste, darkness over the face of the ocean, rushing spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. It almost sounds like Beowulf there. Yeah. Very different. So Milton, having known the Bible in its grandeur uh, and in maybe more of that original sort of form, gives us some insights into the excitement that I personally find in Book 7 of Paradise Lost. Do you feel that Milton's books in Book 7, when he's conveying the Hexameron, do you feel that it's it's more in line with the King James lyricism? Or do you find evidence of, of that dynamism uh, that, that you're identifying in the Fox? I think it's a combination of both, as well as Milton just being uh, a Renaissance writer in which copia or abundance was just so valued. Because um, it, he, his version is the very extended version of Genesis. So what edition of the Bible would you suggest readers use when they are studying Paradise Lost? Um, whenever I teach Paradise Lost, I do use the King James Version. Um, and, and actually, in all my literature courses, I use the King James Version because at least through the mid-20th century, it exerted unparalleled influence on Anglophone or English language culture in nearly every sphere, certainly in the Christian religion, but also education, government, law, science, visual art, and most importantly for my courses, literature. 
Hmm. As an example of just one strand of novels that I just have to pull, put a plug in for uh, in the 21st century U.S. is that the King James Version crops up in the neo-slave narratives of The Known World, published in 2003 by Edward P. Jones, Song Yet Song of 2008 by James McBride, and A Mercy from 2008 by the 1993 Nobel Prize in Literature laureate Toni Morrison. So even if we don't think we know the King James Version of the Bible, it's, it's sort of replicated and put in conversation just in so many diverse places. So um, just to make sure that we all know what we're talking about, the King James Version of the Bible was first printed in 1611 when Milton was a wee lad of three years old. Um, it had the 37-word title, here it is, The Holy Bible Containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by his majesty's special commandment appointed to be read in churches, end quote. It's no wonder then that folks shorten the title. Folks in England tend to call it the authorized version or AV, and folks in the U.S. tend to call it the King James Version or KJV after the British monarch, James King James I, who commissioned the translation. So as for how Milton would have interfaced with the King James Version of the Bible, Regina Schwartz over at Northwestern University phrases it best, I think, that he would have interpreted the Bible, quote, with the thought of a theologian and with the faith of a believer, but also with the sensibility of a poet, end quote. And I want to back up a bit to your having mentioned that many of our listeners, if they are familiar with the Bible, would know the version from, mostly from used by the religious community and houses of worship, readers new to the Bible shouldn't worry about any initial disadvantage they might sense in comparison with their peers who are more familiar with the content, stories, or organization, even of the fat Bible. <laughs> the handy-dandy naming of the books of the Bible and numbering of chapters and verses make navigating the Bible pretty easy. Plus, nowadays, many formal and informal churches use newer translations of the Bible. So everyone is getting the hang of the rhythm of the KJV at the same time. A slight advantage new readers might have is being more in touch with the sheer wonder of the text that often leads to those marvelous self-generated interpretations that come with first readings. Of course, there are readers of the Bible who only get more fired up and develop more nuanced interpretations with every subsequent reading. Book seven of Paradise Lost is a perfect example of Milton being such a reader. Marissa, if I can interject, though, um, you know, do, do your students come with a knowledge of the Bible that you can derive or not really? That's a great question. And I would say both yes and no. I'll just summarize that the bulk of book seven is comprised of the Archangel Raphael's account to Adam and Eve of the creation of the universe. Raphael's narration of creation follows immediately after his account of, like you said, the spiritual battle and destruction in books five and six, the account of the war in heaven. So while books five and six function as a warning to Adam and Eve to avoid disobeying God, I find book seven as providing an affirmative justification for why Adam and Eve should remain obedient. They've been provided a fulsome universe, and they are important agents in maintaining the universe's loving cohesion. 
Milton has Raphael adapt the content of Genesis 1 and some of its best poetic strategies. So I'm going to take just a little time to make sure that we can appreciate at least one line of of what he's doing. One powerful literary device is choric repetition. After the two biblical verses of scene setting that I already read is the first dialogue of the entire Bible. God gets to have the first words. So we have, quote, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, end quote. That's how the first day of the six-day creation starts. And it ends with, quote, and the evening and the morning were the first day, end quote. The KJV uses the same exact wording in the closing of the rest of the second through six days of creation. But there's variation with the opening of the days. We have the same opening of, quote, and God said, let there, end quote, on the first, second, and fourth days. But then we get the slightly different phrasing for the openings of the third, fifth, and sixth days, where he says, where the Bible says, quote, and God said, let the, end quote, as in let the waters under heaven, let the waters bring forth abundantly, and let the earth bring forth. Like children used to vocal storytelling, readers who either read aloud or have a really good internal ear pick up readily on these kinds of subtle changes, which which add up to a tension in combination with the comforting regularity of the phrasing of the opening of each day. These and other poetic strategies lead to the grand finale of the sixth day, when first animals, then humans are created. Each day has the choric evaluation it was good. But the final day of creation ends with very good in the very last line of chapter one. This superlative is open to interpretation. What is the everything that is so very good? The creations of the animals and man on the sixth day? Just of man, by which the Bible and Milton would have meant my mankind or humankind? or the whole accumulation of the six days of creation. Both are valid interpretation. So as I was talking about abundance, Milton explodes the, and I did count them, thank goodness for uh, our internet, (laughs) 797 words of Genesis 1 into 4,009 words packed with details. He paraphrases the opening, flipping the sentence order of the KJB and adding to it. So, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, becomes six and a half lines that represents both the biblical content and Milton's poetic co-creation in his Epicurus. Let there be light, said God, and forthwith, light ethereal, first of things, quintessence pure, sprung from the deep, and from her native east to journey through the airy gloom began, speared in a radiant cloud, for yet the sun was not. She in a cloudy tabernacle sojourned the while. He adds details that combine with the meter to express the sheer joy of creation, a celebration of sorts in which God's creations are inspired to be creative. For example, Milton has the personified entities mark the daily creations with so evening, and morn in chorus sung the second day. So even and morn recorded the third day. Glad evening and glad morn crowned the fourth day. And 
evening and mourn, solemnize the fifth day. Again, you have a lot of repetition, but then those verbs that I tried to emphasize in my reading are a bit different. Again, we have that nice biblical choric effect, although much further apart. And by the way, Milton expresses his interpretation that the very good of Genesis definitely is greatly due to the creation of humankind, maybe more than the accumulation of all the works of creation. He transitions from the creation of land animals to the creation of humans by saying that the work, quote, of the sixth day yet remained, there wanted yet the masterwork, the end of all yet done, end quote, meaning we humans. So affirmative. Okay, I'll just give one more example, one of my favorites of Milton filling in the blanks, as all readers must do with the Bible's concise descriptions in the account of creation. On the sixth day, Milton zooms in, so to speak, with this, quote, the grassy clods now calved, now half appeared the tawny lion pawing to get free his hinder parts, then springs forth as broke from bonds and rampant shakes his brinded mane. In the pristine world, we can all simply admire this lion with its lifted paw. That's what rampant means here. We don't have to be afraid. If I may turn questioner, Marissa, again, does a favorite passage from book seven readily emerge in your classes or your mind? One passage that really interests me in book seven is near the beginning of the creation So spake the Almighty, and to what he spake his word, the filial Godhead gave effect. Immediate are the acts of God, more swift than time or motion, but to human ears cannot without process of speech be told, so told as earthly notion can receive. And that passage fascinates me both theologically, because we're given insight into Milton's understanding of uh, the relationship between God and the sun and how, like, who's doing the creating in creation and also love how we are brought back to book five when Raphael says, okay, so I'm going to tell you about the war in heaven, but you really can't understand the war in heaven. So let me accommodate my storytelling so that you my human listener can understand. And, and and he does it again here. And so this idea of accommodation and what that means for biblical interpretation, but also I think what it means for what we do in the classroom. I just jammed three huge topics into one passage. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to toss that ball back to you. Yeah, that idea of accommodation, Milton's accommodating his story, Raphael's accommodating his story. And in book eight, Adam also will try to figure out how can I tell this angel about my story? And he's such, and this angel is such a good storyteller that I really want to bring, bring my A, a game. So this has to do accommodating also about maybe helping the reader understand or, or the listener, the audience, uh, the full gamut of what you're trying to convey. So, you know, there is this, this idea about Paradise Lost, how to read it, how to read anything. And, you know, do we read it literally or, you know, Milton at the very beginning says he wants to justify the ways of God to men, which is clearly a theological aim, but he certainly voices other aims in the epic too. So this has to do with layers of literacy, not just our ability to read any text, but how we read it. So let me provide some context with the Bible, which is so important to literacy because in Western societies, if households possessed a single book, it was the Bible. 
Now that's hard to really imagine because our phones have countless books available to them. But, you know, it was the Bible up until, I gosh, the beginning of the 20th century, if people owned books and didn't go to libraries. So since at least the fourth century, reading the Bible has involved what's called a fourfold way. Uh, there's the literal or historical sense to be gained, an allegorical sense, a tropological or moral way, and an anagogical way. So it was so common that there was even a memorizable rhyme in Latin from the days when Latin was a vernacular. So um, I, I'll read it here because, you know, I sort of have to uh, prove my comparative literature. <laughs> so, litera gestidoque, quid credus allegoria, moralis quid agus, quotendus anagogia. A rough translation into English rhyme is the literal teaches what God and our ancestors did. The allegory is where our faith and belief is hid. The moral meaning gives us the rules of daily life. The anagogy shows us where we end our strife. So all this goes into the archangel Raphael's accommodating stories and representations appropriate for his audience. And Adam and Eve are represented as smart adults. There's other versions of the Adam and Eve story that really depict them as quite naive. But no, Milton made them intelligent. You quoted Raphael's expression about accommodating, which he states in describing the first day of creation, so told as earthly notion can receive. But he had addressed a similar sentiment right after Adam's query when he asks, quote, what words or tongue of seraph can suffice or heart of man suffice to comprehend? But then right away, he says he's going to give it the good old college try. Quote, yet what thou canst attain, which best may serve to glorify the maker and infer thee also happier shall not be withheld, end quote. Moreover, like a great teacher, he restates what the lesson has been. Hot on the heels of the Son of God returning to the imperial throne and the angels bursting into song after creation, Raphael recaps in the last um, lines of Book 7 the following, quote, And thy request, think now fulfilled, that asked how first this world and face of things began, and what before thy memory was done from the beginning that posterity informed by thee might know, if else thou seekest aught, not surpassing human measures say. So this teacher is saying, okay, now you can pass on the story uh, to any future audiences. In scenes like these, which so resonate with educational experiences, to me at least, we have to remember that Milton was a student, first with a private tutor, then at St. Paul's, and finally at Cambridge and that he was a private tutor for his two nephews and a few other adult young men in the 1640s. What a teacher's dream to have such eager students like Adam asking for more, as he does in the section you quote. Raphael's accommodating teaching leaves student Adam inspired on multiple levels. I'll end my answer to your question by dipping into the opening lines of book eight, which is just such a teacher's wish fulfillment for engaging and inspiring students. Quote, the angel ended and in Adam's ear so charming left his voice that he a while thought him still speaking, still stood fixed to hear. Then, 
as new waked, thus gratefully replied, what thanks sufficient or what recompense equal have I to render thee, divine historian, who thus largely has delayed the thirst I had of knowledge and vouchsafe this friendly condescension to relate things else by me unsearchable, now heard with wonder, but delight, and as is due with glory attributed to the high creator. Just wow, you know, great teacher evaluation, right? <laughs> I would like to, if you don't mind, jump back to the Hexameron. Okay. Because students who have read uh, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, they latch on to the reference to the golden compasses at line 225. You know, that's a really interesting moment, I find, in a book that is uh, of the epic that is so profoundly biblical, to have this reference to math and a a more kind of scientific approach to creation. And so I I was wondering if if you might be comfortable commenting on that particular moment and the ways in which it seems to be less biblical and more about Renaissance science. Yeah, the image of the golden compasses is really key for how wonderfully Milton deploys poetic strategies. William Blake, who is a major Milton fanatic, created an illustration that really resonates with the verbal image, an arresting illustration called The Ancient of Days from 1794 that shows a long-haired, muscular god with golden compasses. And like you mentioned, in relation to your students, in 2003, Philip Pullman called the first of his Dark Materials trilogy, and his Dark Materials is another quotation from Paradise Lost, of his young adult novels, The Golden Compass. So the KGV's genesis does not represent God using tools in creation. So that's definitely Milton's innovation. But it does use that word that I think of in terms of compasses of divide. So on the first day in the Bible, quote, God divided the light from the darkness, end quote. On the second day, quote, God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, end quote. And on the fourth day, in the creation of the two great lights of the sun and the moon and the stars, God, quote, divides the day from the night, end quote. But again, that quark repetition with variation, there's a slight difference with the creation of these inanimate creations and animate creations. For the third day, there's the verb, quote, gathering together of the waters he called seas, end quote. This verse very concisely represents co-creation, I would say. So even just like the invention of compasses to apply to things of the world. So you have the earth and individual flora exhibiting their own creative impulses in this biblical passage, quote, the earth brought forth grass, and your herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself, end quote. So it's like creativity is in itself. The fifth day is similar in giving agency to the waters. Quote, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that might may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven, end quote. Then there's that very good and powerfully different sixth day, 
the earth again has agency in the line, quote, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind, end quote. But humans are even more different. In the account of human creation in Genesis 1, it's, quote, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, end quote. Just God and such a direct creation. But the slowed down account of human creation in Genesis 2 is different. And here it is, quote, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So here we get some more of that sort of, oh, scientific narration where, well, first you have to create the earth with dust because I'm going to use those materials, not dark materials, bright materials, dusty materials, to also then breathe into this human. And then building on that human creation, God makes Eve with Adam's rib. So here's the quote. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man, end quote. God doesn't speak humans into being here, but rather breathes and molds them into being. So fast forward to Milton's epic. As much as Milton integrates his classical or pagan knowledge to his biblical story, he integrates spiritual and burgeoning scientific knowledge, including references to the golden compasses. He doesn't separate what today we would call the liberal arts from the sciences, but rather represents them as partners in gaining knowledge about the world and the self in ways that I think you know are beneficial to all of us, and they're shown for better or for worse, according to students, in us having to take breath requirements, you know, and the same with the science students and, and those in the STEM fields having to take the liberal arts requirements. For example, the only contemporary figure Milton names in Paradise Lost is Galileo, who he claims in an early prose work to have visited during his continental tour. Milton does so in a gorgeous passage describing our buddy, the archangel Raphael, descending from heaven to paradise. So here's the quote. From hence, no cloud or to obstruct his sight, starry or posed, however small he sees, not unconformed to other shining globes, earth and the garden of God, with cedars crowned above all hills, as with by night the glass of Galileo, less assured, observes imagined lands and regions in the moon. That's in book five. This illusion represents Galileo as the pinnacle of the human ability to make visual observations with the telescope, but far less capable than an archangel using nothing. Which is to say that the representation of the scientific object and inventor of the glass or telescope is complex. It's made even more complex by the fact that earlier in the poem, Milne alludes strongly to Galileo, but without naming him directly. He instead calls him the Tuscan artist, since Galileo lived in the Italian region of Tuscany. The scientific object and inventor appear in another epic simile, but this time associated with, boo, hiss, Satan. So here's the passage from book one. The superior fiend was moving towards the shore, his ponderous shield, ethereal temper, massy, large and round, behind him cast, 
the broad circumference hung on his shoulders like the moon whose orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views at evening from the top of Thessaly or in Valderno to describe new lands, rivers, or mountains in her spotty globe. Circling back to the first part of my answer to your rich question, God divides and gathers in creation. So too does the creative artist Milton represent and enact divisions and gatherings in his poetic creation. That's what the most enduring artists do, after all, to engage their readers. Milton is writing for other 17th century readers like himself, who would have been excited about the latest scientific findings. The kind they would have found, for example, in a book published the same year, 1667, as Paradise Lost, a book called Micrographia by Robert Hooke, the first curator of experiments at the Royal Society of London, which had just recently been founded. The book has fold-out illustrations, which uh, I love uh, getting a hold of, and, and we open them up in the special collections that we here, have here at my university. And you have illustrations of the first entities viewed under the, the then new invention of the microscope. The illustrations of the flea and the pencil lead are my favorites. <laughs> well, that that's an excellent, um, very rich answer, and I'm, I'm jealous of your, your archives. Um, <laughs> Uh, one thing that I, I really love about the, the description you just gave is the ways in which fundamental to Milton's poem and his poetics seems to be this kind of cooperative ethos, uh, whether it's the poet working in cooperation with earlier poets or theology working in cooperation with science so that even as creation comes out of acts of division, it, it's the recombination that yields something new. One reason why I find that so striking is earlier in our conversation, you mentioned language sufficient to, to describe something. And for Milton, all of this story is about a, a positive lesson on how Adam and Eve can achieve salvation, right, through their obedience. And that salvation for Milton is bound up with the concept of sufficient grace, right, about humanity working in conjunction with God, right? That's why we have free will. It's not that God says you are saved and you are damned, but rather you have the freedom to save yourselves um, through through me. And so that's another way to think about these acts of division and gathering together again of cooperation, um, in this case, through the sufficiency of poetic language uh, that I hadn't I hadn't seen before. So thank you. Well, good. No, I'm really glad. And, and just to pick up on what you say, I'm again dipping into book eight because I really do find all of Paradise Lost so cohesive. A lot of um, um, readers in uh, from non-Anglophone languages, especially I am especially aware of Spanish language readers, uh, think of Milton as a writer of the good ending. Uh, and so, uh, and those of us who get to read all of his texts know famously that he ended his pastoral elegy, Lycidas, 
with a, a tabarima, just throwing it in there at the very end, even though the rest of the poem um, is unrhymed or, or variously rhymed. And then he ends his tragedy, Samson Agonistes, with a modified sonnet, you know, that sort of thing. But there, I also find him just very cohesive in, uh, in Paradise Lost. And what you were talking about, about this difficulty of expression, um, it is when Adam starts telling his story of his own uh, co-creation that he also, um, you know, worries about how am I going to tell this story? Uh, there is that set of, of always remembering that it's not just about me telling a story, but my audience. Uh, and and that it's it's not just that oh my audience happens to be a really good storyteller this Raphael who went on and on uh, but that I really have something important and and novel and and it will contribute to to both of us learning a little bit even the the teacher learning and that same uh, uh, nephew of Milton's his one time student Edward Phillips did say how Milton would. Tell his students that I too am learning along with you. So I think you know I find that um, that reflection of his nephew. You know, it just could be just that he loved his uncle and wants to tell a really good story. But I, I find some reality in it. You know, based on this story that I have in front of me of Paradise Lost too. Yeah, absolutely. Um... The, just the vast amount of knowledge that I, I continue to find daunting in Paradise Lost um, but is evidence of a lifelong learner, right? One who is, is not going to be slowed down by whether it's social and political upheaval or physical disability. You know, he is going to persist um, in, in his acquisition of knowledge, but also his transmission of that knowledge. Um, and that, I think, comes clear so powerfully um, in Book 7 when in that opening invocation that I, I introduced at the outset of our conversation, the poet speaker, in addition to asking Urania to descend from the heavens, beseeches her to find a fit audience, though few, for the, the song or epic poem. And so if we're going to talk about Milton's audience... What do you make of this idea that this audience for Paradise Lost could be few? Who who gets to be part of that? Well, on one level, it's simply the hope of any writer. (laughs) Yeah, well, today we encounter Paradise Lost as firmly positioned with the world literature canon. Milton had no way of knowing if his epic would indeed fulfill the hope he voiced a couple of times in the 1640s, a good two decades before he published Paradise Lost, again in 1667. The hope to, um, let's see, quote, leave something written that when I die, they, that is future generations, should not willingly let it die, end quote. I mean, that's just beautiful. And I, I do work in archives, and I will tell you that there are many epics that remain buried, some of them, you know, <laughs> rightly so, uh, although we have to give them due attention. So that desire for a fit audience, though few, also, though, has, has many other things that, that, that we should explore. So first of all, it's positioned in book seven. So with that sense of, are you still with me, readers? 
It reinforces Milton's shockingly brave inclusion of all the learning and experience that he could bring to bear on the epic story of the founding of humankind. While the Bible is certainly the urtext of Paradise Lost, like we've talked about, Milton displays his confidence in sacred scripture to bear the weight of the emerging scientific revolution and of even the ancient cultural heritage that he brings. He knew that Paradise Lost was no easy read, just as it was no easy artistic creation. Indeed, that, that phrase you quoted, a fit audience of few, comes in the third major indication in Paradise Lost, the others being at the beginning of book one, as the epic narrator sets to represent hell, and book three, as the epic narrator sets to represent heaven, then here in book seven, in describing creation. So in his 39 long, 39 long line indication, the epic narrator becomes even more of a character in the epic, aligning the creative process with writing Pegasus. He writes, the flying steed unreined, and then giving a bit of a social backstory that this narrator, quote, fallen on evil days, on evil days though fallen, and evil tongues, end quote, and lightly touching on physical blindness, the darkness introduced in the invocation to book three. So I find this self-characterization to be an implicit rejoinder to the sense of, are you still with me, my audience? with the epic, epic narrator jogging the audience to recognize I, the epic narrator, am still here. Mm. And, and, you know, it reminds me a lot of uh, Dante in The Divine Comedy, where he needs the guy Virgil brought back to, to help him out, that this is really hard. Uh, but your question also gets to what makes Paradise Lost so rich. Book seven is just the most extended instance of the epic of the many representations and instantiations of acts of creation, or we could even call it world making. We shouldn't be surprised at that since after all, this early modern English epic was created during the first era in which human Asians traveled the whole circuit of the spatial earth. And they, they had to grapple with the no less important attendant conceptual realities. So this perhaps accounts for the epic's 131 uses of the word world. Further, Milton's choice to center his narrative on the foundation of humanity in the world rather than of his home nation of England, and, and a, a lot of epics really talk about the founding of the nation, or at least Renaissance ones. So he has to sort of use a lot of textual strategies that build what one of the epic's earliest readers, the poet and politician Andrew Marvel, called Milton's vast design. Marvel's a good reader of the epic, responding to the conceptual and phenomenological world Milton forefronts in the opening of Paradise Lost. That first indication starts with of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. And then at the very end of the epic, Adam and Eve's exit into the fallen world is the world was all before them where to choose their place of rest and providence, their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Even when I don't teach the whole of Paradise Lost, I do my best to include the arguments or summaries for the 12 books of Paradise Lost and book seven, plus Genesis one through three. 
where the theme of world making is so forefronted so that the students and I can examine collaboratively the world making required of all cohesive long narratives, particularly epic, and their own world making when today's parlance we call critical thinking. So, you know, long answer, but there's just so much to that idea of fit audience that I think, again, um, I see as a writer's hope, but, you know, extending more and more to who would want to join me in what's a little bit of an uncomfortable process. Yeah, uh, and I, I really appreciate your emphasis on world making and the ways in which this is that reading the epic is an act of creation, of co-creation with, with Milton and in the classroom context with everyone else who is there, reading together, struggling through, uh, hopefully finding meaning and joy in, in the process. Uh, that it, another way of putting that is that Paradise Lost isn't just a product, but is a process. And that- uh, Definitely, definitely. And the thing that I tell my students, because you mentioned the classroom, is definitely we're, we're, we're using the, the classroom time or our discussion boards uh, to, to, to discuss ideas we've formulated that we've reflected on. But one of the best pieces of advice that I got in the very first semester that I read Paradise Lost back when you know I was an undergraduate freshman was read it out loud. And so, you know, I would wait till my roommate was gone. And then it made more sense than when I tried to read it just silently in my head. The same thing with Shakespeare. Although luckily, even back then, we had the BBC versions that I could watch on, you know, big fat videotapes. Uh, but that, that helped me along. But reading it out loud and, and you know, I, I've taken the, the, the liberties of reading a lot of the passages because I think, you know, it slows us down. And, and then those long poetic sentences, we can parse them a lot more that way and, and then, you know, be able to reflect a little bit more on that. That point is reinforced, I believe, by many of your comments here on Book 7 with issues of choric repetition. And I think that that's part of thinking about this poem as something that is written for an audience, right? As a song for an audience. But what you're describing, I think, is, you know, the response that any of us can have to any work of valuable creation. There's so many moments inscribed in Paradise Lost, but I'll, I'll focus on, on book seven, because while you were talking, I, I quickly rushed to line 594 of book seven, where after, uh, right after creation, the six days, uh, the God rests. And then we have, but not in silence, holy kept, the harp had work and rested not, the solemn pipe and dulcimer and organs of sweet stock, all sounds on fret by string or golden wire, tempered soft tunings, intermixed with voice, choral or unisons. And they go on and on. This is the the angel's reaction to the act of creation. They're just so excited that they're going to go on and and essentially, you know, uh, add to it, put this grand finale touch on it. So Milton there inscribing, this is the correct response. You know, with when a really great act of creation has been done, we have to, it, it should move us just the same way that 
uh, Raphael and his story, and Adam just wants it to go on. So here's my story. Yeah, I, I do love that moment as well. The seventh day, while restful, isn't idle. Right. Uh, th- that that and there's this tradition of thinking of that there are actually seven days of creation because the seventh day is the day on which rest is created. Mm-hmm. And what does rest mean? Well, for Milton, rest includes music. Right. As you point out. Right. It, it's celebration. It's re- it, it's it's holy revelry. Um, and so I, I really like this idea that creation precipitates even additional making um, yeah. in multiple media, uh, uh-huh. as you point out. That, that That's excellent. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. Thank you so much, too, because I learned a lot, too, from just preparing for this, but also um, just, you know, being in dialogue, again, collaborating with you on, on this recording. So thank you. 